So there's some outlines in the back. You might want an outline today, even if you don't normally have one, because I've got some, so I got a chart in there and some other things. The copier ran out of staples, so if for some reason uh, you run out, Lee, can you make more copies if we need them, sir? Thank you. All right, so let's uh, let's turn our Bibles to First Thessalonians. And by the way, what do you think of the pulpit? Is this not beautiful? Uh, so if you see Roger Recksteiner, big tall Roger running around, I think he's doing uh, safety detail today, but uh, Roger overhauled the pulpit and made it look real nice and pretty. It blends in with the other color and furniture, so be sure to thank Roger for his hard work this week. Um, I get the best seat in the house. You notice that right here? But um, anyway, well, let's turn, turn to First Thessalonians. And uh, we, we're in that section in chapter 4 where, uh, remember, this is a brand new church, right? Brand new church. They don't have a Bible. They don't, or they don't have, well, they don't have a Bible. They, they have an Old Testament, but not one that's probably accessible to them. They, they know the Old Testament probably to some degree by memorization, but they don't have a New Testament. So the church is brand new. And, and you can imagine, uh, maybe you were like this when you first became a Christian, especially if you didn't have Christian background. You know, someone shares the gospel or you hear it in a, you know, a college ministry meeting or someone drags you to church or you're listening to the radio and some preacher comes out. However, God drew you to himself and you're a brand new Christian. You don't have Christian background. And immediately you're like, man, I have lots of questions. And, and that's where hopefully your Christian friends, your church family are helpful in that way. But that's what's going on in the Thessalonian church. Christianity is brand new. This is one of the first, well, this is the first generation of Christian that are populating this church. And they're having all sorts of problems and all sorts of questions. So Paul's writing to them to encourage them in the wake of the persecution that's going on, but also to answer some of their questions and some of the needs that they had. And one of the questions that was floating around the church was, okay, I get it. I've heard the gospel. We've trusted Christ. We understand grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone and then something of that message. Um, what about our loved ones who have died in Christ? Uh, these are believers who have gone before us. And, okay, so what does this gospel message mean for our friends and family that have preceded us in death? Uh, they, they, they were trusting Christ. They were Christians. But what is that? What, what hope do we have for them? So Paul turns the corner in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in the second part, uh, starting in verse 13, and he writes to give comfort and encouragement to these grieving and sorrowful Thessalonian Christians who have had loved ones that have died in, in advance. And so uh, let's just remind ourselves of where we've been. We'll catch up here and then... Um, as promised, we're going we're gonna to do a deep dive into eschatology today. Okay, Chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, so that's our section. 
And then we'll get into this next time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna touch on it today, but we'll get into it next time. Chapter 5, verse 1, there's a break in the text as indicated by the, the language and the paragraph break there that's appropriate. Now, as to the times and the epochs, meaning, okay, so as we think about these future events, um, thinking about the timing of that, the nature of that, he says, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So he continues his discussion of this, you know, these future events, and he brings up another topic, uh, something called the day of the Lord, and we'll talk about what that refers to here. Okay, now before we jump in, to our review and our discussion here, there was a cross-reference that I didn't have time to show you next time. So I just want to uh, familiarize yourself with it, and then that way as we go along today, you'll have that text in your mind. Okay, So just hold your place there in 1 Thessalonians, and uh, just turn backward uh, a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So even though you're going backward... And you would think earlier in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians was actually written later than 1 Thessalonians. But nonetheless, uh, there's a section here, and we're not going to read the whole thing because it's a bit lengthy, but I just want to point it out to you because as you read this section, it parallels 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following, talking uh, in my judgment about the same events, and also giving a little more detail. So... For example, if we look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 20, Paul writes, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And he goes on to talk about Christ's resurrection, how in Adam all people die, in Christ all can be made alive through him in that way. And then he begins to, th- he begins to think about uh, this, this future resurrection of the dead. Well, that's what we were talking about, right, in, in 1 Thessalonians, that Christ is going to return and uh, those who have preceded uh, those alive, uh, those Christians that have, uh, been, um, have died in Christ will be resurrected and their bodies will be changed and they'll go to meet the Lord in the air as well as believers who are on the planet in those days. And so starting in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, Paul talks about the nature of that glorified body. When it says they're going to be resurrected and they're going to be like Christ, what does that mean? And so he talks about, you know, when we die, typically when you go to a funeral, um, you know, that person's body is, is pretty worn out, either through age or maybe an accident or a disease. So Paul says our bodies are sown a perishable body, right? It's a normal decaying, running down body, but it's raised imperishable. It's raised glorified and redeemed, and he talks about that here. And then uh, verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead, right? It's sown a perishable body, it's raised in perishable, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. And so he goes on to elaborate about the nature of that glorified body that Paul alludes to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then finally, if you turn the page uh, and look at verse 50, so this is 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50, um, uh, he talks about how uh, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. But there's this mystery, right? So, so here's the mystery. What's 51? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... Well, where have we heard that before? 
in First Thessalonians, right? So again, there, there's trumpets all over the Bible, but when we're talking about uh, being changed and resurrected, meeting the Lord, and a trumpet, that seems to tie together First Thessalonians 4 with First Corinthians 15 in that regard. And so he talks about that. The dead will be raised imperishable. We will all be changed, verse 53. But, but for the perishable must put on imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, um, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. So that, that same idea, can you imagine believers that have died being raised, glorified to meet Jesus in the, in the air, and then, and then that wonderful blessed population who happens to be on the planet of Christian when Jesus returns, and they're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. No Iron Man suit needed, right? It's just boom. It's Jesus you know, doing his thing. And uh, and Paul says, you know what's going to be great about that day? It's going to be obvious that death has been defeated and thwarted when those men and women actually rise from the dead and are glorified. And so our takeaway, just like the takeaway in First Thess, look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be movable, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toll is not in vain in the Lord. So he's saying, in light of this, be faithful, be encouraged, keep on, just like he says to the Thessalonians. Okay? Make sense? Okay, so that, again, that, that's the, the, the drive-by of First Thess- or First Corinthians 15. We can go back to First Thessalonians 4 now. Turn back to First Thess 4. But anyway, I just want to show you that because there's a lot of parallel language and we can get a few more details studying all that. Okay. So remember, the section we're in is about giving hope to those who are grieving loss, and that's where Paul talks about uh, this rapture, this being caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and just some reminders, right? Uh, that these, the details of this hope, those who are alive when Christ returns, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Christ will descend from heaven accompanied by three audible alerts, a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. Believers who have died will rise first, and then those believers who are alive will fly to meet the Lord in the air, and then believers will always be with the Lord. And, and then Paul says, we're going to comfort grieving believers with those truths. Okay. So, And then I gave you some background to that last time, just this idea that people are comprised of an inner man and outer man. Right? There's, there's the body, the physical part of us. There's the spirit or the soul, that immaterial part of us. At death, what physical death is, is the separation of that inner man from outer man. The outer man decays. We put it in the ground, put it in a, a grave. But the spirits continue to live, right? The inner man, that, that spiritual part of us, continues to live even though the, the body dies. And at that point, unbelievers reside in Hades. Uh, we looked at that in Luke 16. Spirits of unbelievers reside with the Lord in a place called paradise. Remember, Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross that today he would be with him in paradise. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians and Philippians as well. And then when the Lord returns, the dead bodies of believers are raised and glorified, reuniting with their spirits, and believers who are alive are glorified, paralleling 1 Thessalonians. Okay, So that happens at this thing called the rapture. By the way, in your notes, this is all review. It's not in your notes. It's review. And we read that in 1 Thessalonians. And uh, at a future time, unbelievers are judged, and we'll talk about that today. Okay, So with that in mind, that's where we are. We're talking about 
end times and Paul's giving this instruction so that believers that are grieving the loss of Christian loved ones will not have a lack of hope but will be encouraged. And then that brought up, as I told you last time, all sorts of questions. Okay, So we're going to talk a little bit about eschatology today. We're not going to spend weeks on this, but I want my goal is to give you a bit of an overview of eschatology, okay? So we'll call this eschatology 101. That's 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 not the study of your esophagus. That's the study of last things, okay? Last things. Esch- the eschaton is the Greek word for end end things or last things, final things, okay? So let's let, just some important reminders because you know I don't know what your experience is, but sometimes when Christians get together and, and they they talk about end times things, it starts conflict. Um, it, it would be like, you know, you know, some, some Aggie fan gets together with some Longhorn fan, you know, and they're trying to have Christian fellowship, and it just doesn't go well sometimes. So we, we need to remember when we talk about eschatology, why we do this, but we also need to think about the purpose of it. Okay, so let me, can I just give you some reminders? Because I know that probably some of you are not gonna follow my particular position. And you know what? That's that's fine with me. We can still be friends, and that's awesome. And you might be a member of our church and say, you know, I love Grace Bible Church. It's great. i got a little bit of different view of eschatology, but I still love the church, and I love what it stands for. Great. That's great. We, we don't have to divide fellowship. We don't have to, like, go to different sides of the room or anything like that. We, we can be friends in Christ, though we have a different position on eschatology. You say, why is that? Because eschatology although it represents an important doctrine, is what's considered a secondary doctrine. I was talking to my kids about this last night. There's In in Scripture, there are primary doctrines and secondary doctrines. You say, what's the difference there? Primary doctrines are those doctrines that the Bible makes clear you, you have to affirm in order to be a true believer. And we would say those are primary doctrines. And then... Everything else is a secondary doctrine, not not unimportant, but but not so important that you're not a Christian if you don't believe it. So we can think about, um, I don't know, um, eschatology. That's our example for the day. Okay, so um, yeah, I, I'm thinking like you know our Presbyterian friends that have a different view of baptism. Um, you know, some of our more covenant friends that have a different view of how the covenants work. And you know what? We can love those folks. We can get together. We can hang out. We, we can serve together, even though we might have some doctrinal differences. That Those are secondary matters. Um, when we talk about the gospel and, you know, the Trinity and, and salvation, those are primary matters. Okay, so let's, let's keep in that lane and not get all riled up over things that are secondary. The, the second thing to remember is that because of the prophetic nature of many passages, it's difficult to be certain on many aspects of end times doctrine. Why, why would, why would R.C. Sproul and John Piper and John MacArthur have three different positions on this. I mean, good night. If, if anybody has the knowledge, the experience, the pastoral wisdom to be able to figure this out, it's, it's those guys. And I'll tell you, they all three of them disagree on eschatology. They have different positions. And they're still friends. Okay, so that's a good example. Um, why is that? Because a lot of eschatology deals with passages that are prophetic in nature. And you know the prophetic portions, that is the, the parts of the Bible where there's prophecy, telling about the future, visions, dreams, that oftentimes that prophetic language is, is clothed in metaphoric language, symbolic language, you remember when you were a kid doing literature and they're like, analyze the poem, and you read the poem and you go, I have no idea what this is about. 
No idea. I mean, that's what I did. I don't know what you, some of you literature people probably are smarter than me. But, anyway, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's just, he's not he's not being straightforward. Well, that, that's that's one of the frustrations of prophetic literature is of its nature. It's symbolic. And, and there are a lot of things we can be sure about because the Bible explains itself, but there are other things that are left a bit ambiguous. And so we're left to wisely make conclusions. But as Pastor Terry and I like to say, those are things you don't beat the pulpit on, right? You don't, you don't want to be so confident because humility would, would lead us to be somewhat tentative when the scripture is not absolutely clear. So let's remember that it's difficult, and that's why different men are going to have different conclusions. But but here here's four things that all evangelicals agree on, whether it's Sproul or Piper or MacArthur or any other evangelical. Here, here's what we agree on, and this is what's really important, okay? Not saying these other things aren't important. I'm saying these are more important. Number one, believers who die in Christ will be with him forever. Right? We all agree on that. We've seen that, we, and, and nobody disagrees. No one... No one uh, Disputes that. Number two, Jesus will return to judge and establish his kingdom. Everybody agrees on that too. Okay? They might disagree on when that happens or what the nature of the kingdom is, but nonetheless, we believe he's coming back. We believe he's going to establish his kingdom and judge the living and the dead. Third, we know Satan and demons will be cast in the lake of fire. Everybody agrees on that. We, we may disagree on what the lake of fire is or the timing of that, but we all agree Satan doesn't win. Okay? He loses. And then finally, unbelievers will experience eternal punishment. Okay, so those are kind of four things that all evangelical Christians can agree on. And these are sort of the non-negotiable issues, okay? So let's major on those even as we branch out a bit to talk about other things. Now, finally, as a reminder before we jump in, the emphasis of eschatology, and that's the doctrine of end times, right? Not your esophagus, end times, uh, is, is the, the stress on God's faithfulness to his word, the security of believers, and the promise of future justice. These doctrines are intended primarily to bring clarity and comfort to present-day believers and to communicate a stern warning to unbelievers. That's the purpose of it. So what we don't want to do, guys, and, and I'm, I'm a former recovering engineer, so good night, you know I'm prone to do this, is to get so caught up in the details and so caught up in figuring all this out and that I'm distracted from what the main thing is. Does that make sense? The main thing is we need to be encouraged by this. The main thing is we need to be reminded that God's faithful. We need to be confident that um, he will do what he says he will do, that there will be a future judgment, that we'll be with him, and there's a security in Christ in that, and, and that we should remind others who are grieving of these promises. The main purpose of eschatology is not to debate what our chart looks like. The main purposes of eschatology is to encourage one another based on these these affirmed sort of non-negotiable principles that we all agree on. Okay, does that make sense? A little bit of an extended footnote there, but but we need to we need to remember why so we don't let this turn into a conflict or in some sort of you know theological spitting match or something like that. Okay? All right, here we go. Um, let's talk about some terms. The first thing we have to do, and we, we saw it here in First Thessalonians chapter five is talk about some terms. The first term you need to understand is the day of the Lord. How many heard of the day of the Lord before? Okay. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. On your notes here, the, the, the term is used many, many times, Old Testament, New Testament. It brought, it, it's used really in two senses. One is it refers 
broadly just to the fact that God specially intervenes in history, particularly his sovereign rule over everything, but also the way he intervenes in victory over enemies. So you'll see that word day of the Lord used in context of God's providence over his creation, but also over his judgment of enemies. And and it's used in sort of a generic sense in that way. But then it's got a narrower sense, almost a technical sense, where you'll read it in the Bible and you get the sense that this is talking about an event, not just God's general work in creation or his general defeat of enemies, but but some sort of future event or day or time in history. And that's what we want to think about it in terms of eschatology or end times. So when it's used in that sense, it refers to a future judgment of the nations. Okay? And uh, you see it right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, For you yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So that makes it clear. This is an event that comes in the future, right, based on how he's using it there. And, and then notice, notice the emphasis on God's judgment. While everybody's saying peace and safety, verse 3, what's going to happen? Sudden destruction. Okay, so whereas chapter 4 emphasized the rapturing of believers, the removing of believers to be with the Lord, chapter 5 is emphasizing sudden destruction that comes on unbelievers at the day of the Lord. Okay, so you see that we're really talking about what's probably two different events, at least in my understanding. And, uh, and then he goes on to talk about how believers are protected by that and, and to be encouraged that they're not of the darkness but of the light. Can I, can I, can I tease you with something? The, the, the reason Pastor Terry wanted to do Zechariah is because of Zechariah chapter 14. Now, I'm not going to steal the thunder because that's the climax of the mountain for his sermon series, okay? But I, I want to tease you a little bit with it because it overlaps with this idea of the day of the Lord. So just hold your place there. Flip to Zechariah chapter 14. Now, Terry is not in Zechariah today. He's doing Psalm 100 for Thanksgiving. But... Um, I just I just want to want to read this and and hopefully you'll start sort of spiritually salivating for that point in the future where Terry gets to chapter 14 and he can unfold this in all of its glory. But look at this. Look at this. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 1. Behold a day is coming. Now now if if you've read the whole book which you know we've been doing this day is a reference to this day of the Lord. Okay, So that's the day, right? He says, behold, a day is coming. We're like, what day? Well, if you've read the book, you know what that day is. Uh, when the spoil taken from you is divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the woman ravished. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And when he fights on a day of battle, look at this. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move to the north and the other half will move toward the south, and then you'll flee, right? Verse uh, uh, 5, Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. And in that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but it will come about at that evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the east, the other half to the west. Verse 9, And then the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day... The Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. Now, I've been to the Mount of Olives. I've stood on the Mount of Olives. 
uh, you do not want to be on the Mount of Olives when this happens. Because Jesus is going to come back, he puts one foot on the ground, and it causes a divine earthquake that splits the thing in half. And this is these are part of the events of this day of the Lord. Now, if we compare that to what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 with this rapture, we say, well, maybe it could be the same time, but it sure sounds like something different. Okay, and that's one of the disputed events, right? Is, is the rapture and, and this return of the Lord the same event? Or are these two different events with some sort of time frame in, in the middle? But my point is, just to read, that this, this day of the Lord is going to be quite a thing. I mean, quite a thing. The luminaries dwindle and this battle, and then, and then Jesus rules on the earth, it says, as king. So that's the day of the Lord. The second thing, the second term you need to get familiar with is this thing called the tribulation. The tribulation. This event references a future time of intense suffering and trouble, particularly for the nation of Israel. It's likely that the duration of this time is seven years. And again, that's debated, but there are passages that make clear uh, that, that seven years seems to be uh, a likely duration. Now, we read about that especially in Matthew chapter 24, in Revelation chapter 6 to 14, and then there's a specific reference to it in the middle of that section in chapter 7, verse 14. And then Daniel chapter 9, for those of you that are in our home group, uh, we're coming up on Daniel chapter 9 in our next meeting. So all this, you know, Cherry's doing Zechariah, I'm doing First Thess, and then Daniel's coming here. It's, it's like the trifecta of eschatology merging together here. So uh, anyway, um, so, so the point is that this tribulation period is a future time of great persecution, great distress, great affliction. Um, the, the judgments that are mentioned in the book of Revelation are likely a part of that. Uh, Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24, which if we have time, we'll look at that in a moment, but I want to reference that right now. Okay? The third term you need to be familiar with is the rapture, and hopefully you learned that last week. That's this term that refers to Christ's initial return to resurrect and remove believers from the earth, meeting them in the air. And then the final turn, or the, the second to last one we need to do is, is the millennial kingdom, not the millennium falcon, boys, the millennial kingdom. And uh, as the name implies, this is a 1,000 year kingdom era. Now again, some people are going to say, is that a literal 1,000 years? Is it more symbolic? And we can talk about that another day. But, but when we talk about millennial kingdom, we're thinking about a future time where Christ will rule on the earth for 1,000 years following his second coming. And what's important, remember we read in the psalm, Psalm 111, it says twice, God's going to be faithful to his covenant. He's going to be faithful to his covenant, faithful to his covenant. And we see that language all over the Bible. Well, one of the reasons, at least I believe in a future millennial kingdom that's a literal kingdom is that that was promised in the Old Testament. That was promised specifically to King David and the people of Israel in 2 Samuel 7 in a covenant called the Davidic Covenant. And you'll remember, if you have read those verses, that uh, God promises David that there would be a, a coming leader who would sit on David's throne and rule a redeemed people uh, in righteousness. So the millennial kingdom is a fulfillment of God's faithfulness to that. And it's talked about specifically in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, when uh, uh, John seeing the vision communicates, um, or, or uh, John seeing the vision, hears communicated to him that Christ will set up his kingdom and will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Okay. And then finally, the, the final term you need to understand is, is the new heavens and the new earth. 
that is a future eternal creation free of sin and suffering where believers will reside with the Trinity forever. And again, Revelation 21 talks about that. Uh, Peter talks about that where, you know, the old heavens and earth are destroyed and a new one is made. And again, you know, some people are going to say, well, you know, is that the same as the millennial kingdom? Is it different? And again, we understand there, there's some differences there. But the point is, these are the main terms you need to understand if you're going to get your brain around end times. Okay? Questions on that? Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay. So let's start putting some of these pieces together then. Okay? So what we have seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then we've looked at the day of the Lord in um, uh, Zechariah, just kind of doing a drive-by there, and other passages. So th- this, is, this is what uh, I believe. This is what our church doctrinally believes. And um, it, this is just a simple way to think about it, okay? So, so we're over here right now in something called the church age. We see in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the next event is this rapture where believers are removed from the earth, Christ descends to the air, and they meet in the air. Then there's a period of tribulation, perhaps seven years, and then at the end of that, Christ returns, his feet come to the Mount of Olives, it's split, there's a final battle that's alluded to there. Incidentally, that battle that Zechariah talks about is likely the same battle that other places called call Armageddon. So if you heard Armageddon and all that... Uh, that's likely where that battle takes place. Um, I've been to Megiddo. I've seen where the, the valley and all that's going to happen. And then as Zechariah mentioned, once that battle is over, Jesus rules as king. That's where that millennial kingdom and fulfillment of the Davidic covenant happens, where Jesus rules for a thousand years. And then at the end of that, there's a final judge. It's not on the outline here, but at the end of that is the, the final judgment and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? So th- this is what we call... A, a pre-tribulational view, okay? Um, make sense? Okay. All right. So let's talk about some doctrinal distinctives here, okay? How do we get that? Well, first of all, th- this idea of a pre-tribulational rap. How many of you have heard pre-trib or pre-tribulational rap? you heard that before? Okay. So I know sometimes you hear that and you go, I've heard it, but I don't really know what it means, okay? And, and sometimes that's true. So when we talk about a pre-tribulational rapture or pre-trib, that references, that all this tribulation stuff is in reference to when the rapture happens. Does the rapture happen before the tribulation? Does it happen in the middle of the tribulation? Does it happen after the tribulation? So pre, mid, or post-trib is where we get those terms. So... Uh, the pre-trib would obviously reference the time that the rapture in relation to the tribulation, before the tribulation. So we end up with this, right? The rapture happens before the tribulation happens. Mid-trib, as the name implies, would put the rapture right here. Post-trib would put the rapture right here. Make sense? Pre, mid, post-trib. Okay. Um, the other positions are mid-trib and post-trib. And then, as the name implies, pre-millennial. Uh, <laughs> Alan was... Uh, joking with me last night, he says, I'm so thankful that I'm post-mill because he's not, he's not a millennial kid. He's the generation after millennials. And I thought, that's good. That was, are you, where's Alan? Is he here? Yeah, I thought that was really creative of him. Anyway, um, that's not what post-mill means, but it was a good joke. So use that with your friends. So pre-mill or pre-millennial is a reference to the timing of Christ's second coming. Okay, so when you hear pre-mill, post-mill, we're thinking about the timing of when Jesus returns in the second coming. Pre-mill, as the name implies, references the timing of Christ's return at the second coming, coming before the millennial kingdom, right? 
whereas other positions like post-mill, Christ returns after the millennial kingdom. Or amill, right, an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God, right? Atheist, right? So someone who's amill is someone who doesn't believe in a literal millennial kingdom. They believe the millennial kingdom is more of a spiritual kingdom that's either happening right now or in the future, okay? So, but that's where those terms come from. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? Now, this is significant because some of our Christian friends that are post-mill are going to be people who are who really look at Christian culture differently. I was talking to my kids about this last night. Uh, we were talking a lot last night about this. Um, if you're post-mill, a lot of our Christian friends that are post-mill believe that part of our gospel work now is to create a Christian society. We're creating the millennial kingdom on earth as the church. And when that kingdom is finally established, when we have a Christian culture, then Jesus comes back. And you can understand that those who are post-mill have a much more optimistic view of where the culture's going, if they're thinking it ends in a Christian kingdom, versus those of us that are pre-mill, we would say, well, in our view, things get worse and worse and worse and worse, and really bad, and that's why Jesus has to come back to fix it. So you can see there's very practical implications for some of this stuff as we think about the Christians' involvement in culture and in government and things like that. Okay, so you good on that? Okay, so now let's. This is really the point, right? Is so how do we? How does our church arrive at pre-trib, pre-mill? And again, we can be friends if if that's not your view. If you have friends, that's not your view. But let me just give you the, the biblical evidence of why we think that's the most plausible way to put all this data together. Okay. So first of all, um, and, and if you've been in our church for very long, you understand that, that we take the interpretation and handling of the Word of God very, very seriously. And what that means is we want to apply a, a consistent way of interpreting the Bible um, throughout the whole Bible. Now, that's not saying that when we get to symbolic language, we don't recognize that, or we get to a parable, we don't recognize that, or if it's poetry, we don't recognize that. But what it is saying is we're going to try to take the Bible in its plain, normal sense unless there's something so compelling in the context that we need to take it a different way. Okay, And that's called a a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutics if you want the big, long term. We we just say we try to take the Bible in its plain, ordinary sense and let it speak for itself in that way. And in our judgment, when you apply that method of interpreting the Bible and reading the Bible in its plain, normal sense, you arrive at a pre-trib, pre-mill conclusion. In order to get some of those other views... Our, our brothers and sisters that arrive at those other views believe that there's a time to apply a different hermeneutic, a different way of interpreting the Bible in more of an allegorical way or more of a spiritual way so that what you and I read says a thousand-year kingdom in Revelation, and they would say, well, that word thousand, it, it probably is not a literal thousand. It's probably just reference to a long spiritual time. And the, again, two ways of interpreting. Um, so we, we strive to be consistent in, in, in one method of interpreting the Bible, it's norm plain sense, and that leads to these conclusions. Okay. And again, if I had a, an amill friend here, a post mill friend here, a, a post trib friend here, they would agree with that. I, I'm not I'm not saying stuff that they would disagree with. Everybody agrees that there are hermeneutical differences or differences in how we interpret the Bible that leads to those different conclusions. Okay. 
But the second thing you need to understand is that when you compare passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and, and when you compare 1 Corinthians 15 with passages that reference the second coming, like Matthew 24 and Zechariah 14 and others, it leads to the probable conclusion that the rapture and the second coming are two different events. When I read 1 Thessalonians 4, that believers are raptured, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, right? And and then I read what chapter 5 talks about in the day of the Lord, this day of destruction, this day of peace and safety. And then I read Matthew 24 and 25 that talk about that. And Zechariah 14 that I read for you a moment ago. I read those and I go, you know, it doesn't sound like the same day. It doesn't sound like the same time. It could be, right? And there are brothers and sisters that believe that. But in, in my judgment, in our judgment, those are so different that we're talking about two different events. Uh, and when we add to that this idea that a tribulation has to fit in to the middle of all that somehow, we end up with the idea that we have a, a rapture, a tribulation, and then the return of the Lord and the second coming uh, in judgment there. Okay? Now, let me just, let me just com- show you this, okay? And um, uh, how's the best way to do this? Probably the best way to do this is go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, and again, I, I wish I had time to read and just take this whole thing apart, but I, I want to give you enough help that as you look at the notes and, and do some study on your own this week, you, you can look at this and you know, decide where you're going to land. But um, look at look at uh, Matthew 24. Jesus is talking here, <clears throat> and uh, he's walking with his disciples. Chapter 4, verse 1, and uh, and they're walking by the temple. And Jesus looks up at the temple and he says, um, "Do you see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down." So you imagine that you're hanging out with your friends, you're walking to the square in Granbury, and your buddy says, "I just want you to know that whole thing's going to get torn down one day." What a great way to start a conversation. <laughs> You'd be like, what? They're going to tear down the courthouse? And so that's what Jesus is saying. They're, they're going to tear down the temple. And so the disciples start talking, and uh, later on they're wondering. And so now, they're, now they leave. They're at the Mount of Olives. Interesting, they're at the Mount of Olives, in light of what Zechariah says. And uh, the disciples say, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, again, when we, when we compare what Jesus says here, with the parallel account in Luke, we get, we get additional data to consider. But essentially what Jesus is going to talk about is he's going to talk about three things. He's going to talk about when the temple gets destroyed. He's going to talk about signs of his return. And he's going to talk about what happens in that last day there, right? He, he says here, um, you know, what, what, what are the signs of the end of the age? When are these things going to happen, right? Now the difference, here's what's interesting. When's the temple actually destroyed? 70 A.D., uh, when does the rest of this stuff happen? Probably future, right? Now, there, there are some folks that think everything happens in 70 AD, but again, the, the, the hermeneutic you have to apply to get there is probably not the best way to understand it. So what Jesus is addressing is when's the temple destroyed, but then when is your return? When are you coming back? What's the sign of all that? So between Matthew and the parallel in Luke, Jesus is going to answer both of those questions. Okay, so, so look here. He talks about in chapter 24, verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. These are merely the beginnings of birth pains. They will deliver you to tribulation. They'll kill you. They'll be hated by all the nations because of my name. Many people will fall away. False prophets will arise. Lawlessness increases, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel, the kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
And then in verse 15, he's going to reference here something called the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet there. And um, those of you that are in, in my home group, we're going to talk about that in detail. But essentially, this was a prophetic, uh, uh, a prophetic uh, um, statement that Daniel made for the future in reference to the holy place being desecrated. And then uh, uh, Jesus says, when that happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Whoever is in the housetop must not go there. Don't go back to get your cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant. Verse 19, pray that your flight won't be in winter or a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as had not been occurred since the beginning of the world. Um, and then uh, let's jump down to... Da, 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 da. Uh, yeah, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation, those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. And again, that sounds similar to Zechariah, right? The illuminaries are going to dim. Um, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And uh, then the Son of Man will come on the clouds in the sky in power and glory. He will send forth his angels and a great trumpet. There's our trumpet again. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of the sky to the other. Okay? And then... Um, and then if we jump down to verse 42, uh, he, oh, where is it, 42? Um, I'm sorry, 36. He compares it to the day of Noah, right? Just like in the days of Noah, 38. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Verse 39, and they did not understand till the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There'll be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. You say, that sounds like the rapture. At first glance, yes. But remember, in the rapture, believers are taken from the earth to be with the Lord, and unbelievers remain. In this passage, it's talking about unbelievers being taken away to judgment, and believers remain. So you go, okay, this is probably a different event that we're talking about here. This seems to parallel Zechariah's day of the Lord more than it does uh, the rapture text. Now, there, there are some things in here that make us think maybe this is the rapture, but there are other things that I think are more compelling, and, and that's why I want you to see here, okay? So how do we end up with a rapture and the second coming being two different events? Um, well, Christ comes in the air, right, in the rapture. Christ comes to the earth. That's what Zechariah says, the mountain split. Christ removes believers, right, versus what we just read, Christ removes unbelievers, right? One is taken away to judgment, the other is left. There's no mention of Christ establishing his kingdom at the rapture, but at the second coming, that's why he's returning. Uh, as Zechariah says, he sets up his kingdom. Believers are rec- resurrected and receive glorified bodies. There's no mention of a resurrection in our text here or in Zechariah. Uh, Christ comes to remove unbelievers to be with him. Wait, wait a minute, that's not right. Christ comes to... That should be believers to be with him, right? Yeah, yeah. What a difference a U and an N makes, right? So just scratch that out in your notes. Um, whereas Christ comes to judge, okay? So the purposes are different. Now, again, um, there's strengths and weaknesses to different positions, and I'm not here to, to beat the pulpit on this, but if we apply a consistent hermeneutic and we look at the key passages, we say it seems like that millennial kingdom is, is a literal thing, an actual thing in, in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and it seems like this this rapture and this tribula and this um, second coming are two different events. And as Matthew talks about and um, other places like Revelation, probably the tribulation that seven years is what fits between those two events. And again, not going to be dogmatic about it, but that seems to be the most plausible way to put the data together. 
Okay, that makes sense. Now you have even more questions than last time. But that's okay. And, uh, don't worry, we'll come back next week. We'll talk a little more about it, but you can study these things, look into it, and, uh, and see what you think, okay? Let's remember the main thing, though, right? Jesus is coming back. We're going to be with Him. He judges, and uh, all is well. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. And uh, even though we have to dig in a little bit to some of these uh, particular passages and, and ask for prayerful wisdom just to, to put it together, we thank You that uh, Christ is coming again and that believers will always be with Him and that you will judge the living and the dead in righteousness. And uh, we're so thankful that we have this hope and this assurance, especially as we think of Christians that have died, but but also that, that we would warn those who are not in Christ that these days are coming, and that uh, today is the day of salvation, and to not wait or put that off when uh, the need for salvation is today. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for these promises and, and these encouragements to us. Help us to walk in a humble confidence in these things and uh, to be grateful for the security we have in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.